This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. You see that I'm here with the the famous Josh Hoffer. We're going to be talking about uh, sanctification, inner healing, spiritual formation. It's going to be an exciting episode. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. You'll notice that Michael Squarebush is not with us on this episode of Remnant Radio. It's Tuesday. He's got a lot of stuff going on at church, working hard. And uh, yeah, hopefully our next couple of Tuesdays are going to be filled with our slots that we've recorded on the Kansas City Prophets. You know it. We've interviewed Sam Storms doing a historical dive into the the happens abouts, what happened during the season of the Kansas City Prophets there at the International House of Prayer. We also got tons of great interviews. If you want some of our interviews, uh, interviews with Francis Chan, Mike Bickle, Christine Kane, Lou Engel, Will Hart, uh, uh, Tom, whose last name is escaping me at this very moment, uh, but tons and tons of guys. Will Hart was on there. You want all those interviews in advance. We'll be uploading them this week and next week on Patreon, giving early access to those individuals. But if you're out there and you're like, hey, I don't I don't want to pay five bucks a month to get early access. Don't worry. Uh, we'll release it once a week here on the YouTubes. Uh, so that's kind of also my, my humble pitch to say, if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description for PayPal or Patreon. You can give a one-time gift there on PayPal or a reoccurring gift on Patreon to help support the channel. That's my whole spiel. Also, what's more important is there's another link in the description of this video, the Amazon link for Josh's book. Uh, Ooh, before yeah. before I uh, tell everybody about that important. book, it's another one. Let's uh, let's clarify that. Right? No, yeah, it's another. No, it's yeah, it's your yeah. book. It's your book. Uh, 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 Josh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry before we talk about uh, transformation and all that good stuff. Yeah, you know what's interesting, just in your, I've just been looking at some of the stuff you guys have been putting out recently. Um, I, and I just over the last day and a half listened to your interview with Mike Bickle, which was fantastic. Um, I, my background, the person who most directly influenced me, um, was John Paul Jackson with streams ministries. And you and I have talked about him just a little bit. Um, His name and he was a couple times. I'm sure it would because he was, and he told us a lot of stories, um, from that time period and some of the craziness that happened around there. So I'm, I'm super fascinated to listen to that one. So my pitch to everybody that's listening, Josh has no idea that, um, you know, that I would say this, but you know, support the Patreon because that's going to be a fantastic series, an absolutely fantastic series. And, okay, and I've got take you off I've our personal... list as well, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> and I get that. I get that. I, I literally finished the episode on the, on the drive back to the office to do this episode with you guys. <laughs> uh, so I, I heard you guys talking with Mike about 10 minutes ago. Um, 
so so anyway yeah that i i'm my name is josh i run a ministry called wind ministries and I'm in uh, prince edward island canada which is the smallest province actually the smallest city i live in in the smallest province in canada um and so that our our retired head pastor was fond of saying that good things come out of small places um you know uh, riffing on jesus coming out of bethlehem um so anyway, we run a ministry where our, our heart really, my wife and I run this ministry, Win Ministries, where our heart is to um, to help people engage the the rhythm of life where you discover more and more of the Father's heart for you, more and more of the life of God coursing through you, transforming you, changing you. And so um, we planted and start. we started the ministry in 2018 and, um, you know, I had been running Streams Ministries connected with John Paul Jackson and... Uh, and that that particular um, slice of the charismatic the charismatic wing of uh, Christianity and and you know seeing so many especially in the last couple of years seeing so many of the excesses so many of the problems um, and you know admittedly good things happening too my life was radically impacted by the charismatic movement um, and and a lot of writing the book I think part of my in part of my hope is that it brings the message of transformation to the charismatic church and, um, and, and broadly speaking, the evangelical church. But, um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me and I love helping people encounter who God is. And even, even understanding that, um, you know, it's funny. I, I was doing a podcast with a, a Anglican friend of mine, um, and, uh, realizing how many of the terms that we typically use, in in whatever church culture we were raised in, we have loaded terms that mean certain things, and uh, and encounter is one of the ones we use um, in in uh, charismatic circles. And it's a loaded term because it means a whole lot of things when we say it, and we assume people know what we mean when we say it. But I remember using it within the context of my conversations with my Anglican priest friend, and uh, he had no idea what I was talking about. You know, he thinks that. What you're talking about is an encounter is mm. seeing someone on the side of the street. Um, and so he would just use different language, right? And so I, well, part of what I hope to do in, in finding language that you find in church history, finding language you find, you know, you'll see in the book, there's a number of quotes from Eastern Orthodox authors, from Catholic authors, from Anglican authors, um, that we can find some common ground and say, hey, look, we may have diverging opinions on... Um, you know, I think the nuances of, of doctrine, but definitely have diverging opinions. Uh, but there is some consistency we can find. And the, consi- the consistent thread we can find in Christian history is that knowing God is pretty important. Um, and, you know, I don't think you can overstate that. Yeah, absolutely. In your book, you know, you're, you're certainly talking about inner healing. You're talking about sanctification, the spiritual formation, the inner life development. Um, all, all those things are being talked about, but it is from the starting place of intimacy with God. It's not like, hey, let's talk about sanctification. I look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday. And that's the process of sanctification. But you actually rooted the whole conversation around intimacy. So unpack that for us a little bit. Why did you do that? Um, well, you know, when, when you look through scripture and then you look through history as well, uh, I'm just so convinced that anybody that did anything notable, whether it's in scripture or Christian history, uh, their life was radically impacted because they, they, on some level, they, you know, quote unquote, met God. 
and anywhere from looking at some of Jonathan Edwards' memoirs and him talking about the moments he had walking where he's has like supernaturally has the sovereignty of God expounded to him uh, in a moment, uh, all the way back to looking at Abraham and him being launched on his world saving, you know, his family saving, world saving, literally um, cosmos saving mission um, that the whole family of God would come from him was all inaugurated by a moment of intimacy. And uh, and then we look all through Scripture, and we see one of the one of the examples I like anchoring it in in Scripture is Isaiah six, where Isaiah has an experience uh, where it says he's he sees the throne of God high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. He talks about the seraphim that he sees, the the angelic presence he sees, uh, and then he says, "Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips." And and so through this whole Isaiah six narrative, Isaiah sees God. It describes the experience he has, but the way that he describes seeing God isn't so much giving God um, visible character traits, because he doesn't actually describe what God looks like. He describes the seraphim, he describes the activity, but he doesn't describe God himself. He says, I saw him and I'm undone. So the way that he describes the vision of God is the impact it has upon his life. I'm undone. I realize something about myself. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then the, in the very next breath, he essentially is given the mission of his life. And that all comes back to that place of an intimate moment, you know, what we would say an, an encounter, um, a, a vision, a significant moment. Uh, and, that, and that inaugurates everything. And so we see that too with Paul, right? Paul on the road to Damascus um, and how... He's knocked off his proverbial horse and has a moment where he the the sovereignty of God is unfolded to him. Um, the power of God is unfolded to him. He meets Christ, and his entire life is radically upended. And and so I'm just so convinced. And even thinking back to um, you know some of some of the guys I love studying, of course, the Desert Fathers. Um, most of them were inaugurated into the their influence in the spiritual life because they had some kind of profound encounter and and they couldn't help but they couldn't stay the same and you know you've got going back to anthony the great in the third century he's he enters into a church and his profound encounter happens when the words of christ are preached uh to the grit to the the words to the rich young ruler go and sell all that you have uh and go and come and follow me and so yeah, Anthony the Great's about 18 years old at the time, and the Holy Spirit just strikes him to the core with that message. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you how many of how many people tune into the Remnant Radio or will watch this episode um, after the fact that have read those words or heard a pastor preach those words and have not, as a um, as a recourse of action, went and sold all they had and followed God in a in a more extravagant way, just because the words were preached. So there's a significant moment that happens to Anthony. Um, and, and so, you know, from that, from studying, uh, I've really appreciated studying some of the, um, the spiritual formation writings of Marcus Warner and Jim Wilder um, and uh, uh, David Benner and some of these guys that have been looking into I love Jim Wilder calling himself a neurotheologian, you know, inventing terms to describe what he's talking about. Um, but looking at even even more so, um, uh, I found a really helpful book for me was uh, Bessel Van, Bessel Vanderkolk's book, um, "The Body Keeps the Score," and understanding how 
how painful moments form our brain and how they impact our psyche and how we think. And so all the way from, you know, looking at Abraham and, and church history, looking to the modern advances and how we understand, um, how we understand the nature of the brain, the nature of formation and the nature of what gives us the kind of energy that sustains personal growth. And, um, you know, it's very difficult to sustain personal growth on fear and fear tends to flame out over time. You know, think of, um, you know, you, you, you get a hit of fear because you real you look at the scale and you realize you're a little bit overweight. And so you try and make some changes, but it's very difficult to make those changes last over time. Uh, but when you find joy in the process, when you fall in love with the process of, um, exercise and working out and you actually enjoy it, um, uh, maybe you enjoy the alone time or you find something that you appreciate about it. It's much easier to sustain it. Maybe for me, when I'm working out, I like uh, um, listening to teachings. You know, that's I don't necessarily like the process of working out, but I like listening to teachings. That's time for me to set aside. So I find joy in the moments and the joy in the moments helps to sustain um, longevity there. And so, you know, you just look at this whole thread in the makeup of humanity. You look at how God comes to humanity through scripture and then through Christian history. And, and you can't ignore the fact that um, people change not because, you know, I hesitate to say this, but you have to hear me when I say it is not just because they read words on a page, but because they encountered something profound and they saw something profound and that thing gave them a taste. Like I was raised in church. I was raised with all the right Bible verses. I was raised, you know, in, in a technically, well, it's charismatic, but technically, you know, broadly speaking, Protestant evangelical in terms of theological disposition. And um, it wasn't until a moment where the Lord came to me and spoke to me in a personal way that really upended my life and, and captivated me and gave me a reason to start coming back to church and start finding and seeking him. So even in my own personal experience, I've found that um, the thread line for all of my life has been knowing him and the pursuit of knowing him. Now, yeah. with that said, um, I know I love there's a there's a statement that um, Brendan Manning makes in his I think it's his book, The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. Um, maybe it's not that book, but he makes it and he says, most of my life, most of my prayer life is dryness and longing and crying out for a tent for the touch of the father's heart or the touch of God. And um, so, you know, you start talking about encounter, you start talking about rhythms of intimacy and things like that and, and growing in your spiritual life and growing and knowing God in a personal and phenomenal way. And people think that everything is like, oh, my goodness, that person's life must be full of these rosy moments. And, and while there are moments with the Lord, there is a lot of struggle. And I love how looking at, looking at some of the, the guys I find as inspiration, again, the Desert Fathers, that they considered themselves and referred to themselves as strugglers. That was a very common term in, uh, in the Desert Fathers' writings to, to talk about um, who we are on the face of this earth as humans. We're and fellow strugglers. I think that's a really great intro because people are understanding, okay, so you're talking about in terms of transformation from, from some kind of encounter. This is, the, this is the title of Josh's book, Transformation, Catching a Glimpse of the Beauty of God. But it is talking about this internal spiritual life that we are invited into with Christ. So, so uh, I, I think we have a, uh, uh, one of our uh, 
viewers has got a really great question that I actually think that you would agree with. So I'll give you a moment to maybe frame this question. Uh, but, but Josh says, uh, John MacArthur, right, and, and many others never met God. And I think he's talking about the kind of mystical experience that you just described. Many uh, evangelical leaders, prominent Christian leaders have never had this kind of like encounter that we just described, but they had tremendous impact on the body of Christ. Uh, he said, I must be missing something here. So let me give you a second to kind of unpack uh, for Josh and others who are hearing you talk about these mystical experiences. You know, I've had them myself and I find them valuable and meaningful. I wouldn't want to discredit others who haven't had that. And I don't think that you are either, Josh. So so maybe help uh, frame this for our viewers who are having a hard time comprehending the, the this, not that, and the, the haves and have nots. Well, you know, I, I and I think that would... That's too, to me, it's too binary in looking at that approach is, is, well, John MacArthur writes against charismatic Christianity, which I get, by the way. I mean, there's a lot of excess and there's a lot of craziness. And so there is a need for check. I'm going to give him a lot more material after this Kansas City Prophet series. (laughs) Yeah, you probably are. I, (laughs) I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I've heard a lot of the stories. I know there's some crazy stuff. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me. But I don't think that John MacArthur would characterize his life or his prayer life as an absence of God or devoid of moments of um, freshness or a touch of peace or or something of that nature. I don't know John MacArthur, but most of these guys that that would be put under that cessationist reformed camp, they don't think of their prayer life as just emptiness until the end. They think of their prayer. There's a there's a robust there's a robust faith, and and so they may think differently along the lines of the 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 way that we see the supernatural inbreaking of God into our everyday mundane life. But I don't think they'd characterize their life as having never had. And this is where we use this term encounter, and we and it's a loaded it's a loaded term. And so I'm fine using loaded terms, but we have to explain what we mean because an encounter so- can mean anything from the vision Abraham Abraham had to that that moment of oh I feel refreshed because that moment of prayer this morning where um, I was meditating on scripture I was reading scripture I was offering myself to God and I just feel quickened and enlivened and we could call that an encounter too and so you know I I don't know that I would read into John MacArthur's writings or others and say well they never had that moment one, because I don't know them, and so I can't speak on behalf of them. Uh, but I, I do know that oftentimes, like even, even um, you know, the, the reformed figurehead, Jonathan Edwards, talks about significant moments he had with God, mm-hmm. maybe not in visionary ways, but moments where revelatory moments, I, it, and I mentioned it um, briefly earlier, or John Wesley, too, talks about, uh, you know, one of the reformers, of course. Uh, but um, John Wesley talks about, preaching along and and having impact and influence and then and really wrestling much like luther too wrestling with that um the the catholic theology that they were uh, raised under and coming to a coming to a salvific experience wesley talks about it in his journals um having a salvific experience where it he wakes up and he's like everything was new and so this is an experience, and my language for that, because of my the culture I was raised in, would be encounter. That might not be everybody's language for it. So you know, one we've got to we've got to talk about what we mean with encounter. Does that just mean that they're going to they're going to have to have this dramatic moment 
I mean, like I said with Anthony the Great, his dramatic moment was a moment where the scriptures are preached and his heart is quickened to the meaning of go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. There's no visionary experience for him. Now, he records visionary experiences later, but that moment of captivating him that begins the, the, the lifestyle of transformation in his life is based on that quickening of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. So I think there's lots of room within scripture and Christian history to define that um, catching a glimpse of the beauty of God from all the way from the supernatural experience of Abraham having a vision of God down to, um, again, Anthony the Great, the words being preached and his mm-hmm. whole life being transformed. Yeah, and, and we would have to assume that every true Christian to some extent has had that experience because we hold to a view of depravity that would say we're broke and we need God to save yeah. us, right? So it's an initiatory act of God that whether you're Armenian, you know, uh, empowers you to believe or Calvinist makes you alive so that you can believe, but in both kinds of, or all all, all forms of soteriological systems, even the, the Molinistic perspectives, all of the Orthodox ones that I'm aware of, it requires God to do some kind of initiatory act. So what you're talking about seems to be just a meaningful encounter with the Spirit. And, and this is interesting because in your book, you also talk about... Um, our inability to kind of like quicken some of these moments. Like we, we live in a culture of self-help. We want to change ourselves. We're like, okay, I've got this problem, this problem. I need to fix it. So I need to like stir a wilderness season, or I've got to like throw myself into a trial so that I can be perfected. Can you kind of speak into God's sovereign providential hands in this process? Um, so, so unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. The, um, well, I mean, just thinking about the the scriptural narrative too of um, looking at the Israelites in the wilderness, um, and uh, you know they didn't inaugurate their time in the wilderness where they came into an awareness of, uh, on some level, the power and majesty and authority of God. Um, you know, they, they were inaugurated by God into the wilderness, not they went into the wilderness and created some kind of mystical experience. Um, and uh, Jesus goes into the wilderness, you know, even thinking of Jesus, goes into the wilderness preparing himself, right, in fasting and prayer. Um, but he doesn't inaugurate the experience. He goes into the, in the, in, in the sense of the temptation. Um, so he doesn't go in inaugurating the experience. He goes in in preparation of his life in a place of, you know, I'm receiving from the Father. I'm only doing what the Father has done, that the Holy Spirit has come to me in, in the baptism. Um, and so yeah, I just see throughout Scripture, there's no one who really inaugurates an experience with God. God comes to us. And that's, and that's you know, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2, where he says that, um, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but only the Spirit can reveal, only God can reveal God. Like you can't reveal God to yourself. You can't think yourself into God. You can't um, imagine enough to know God. God reveals God. And that that works on an ontological level with all of creation. Paul says that all of creation, on some level, his invisible attributes are made known. So you can't reveal that. Creation reveals that in that sense of the created order of things. Um, and, and then you have all the way down to God who is... Um, 
dwells in unapproachable light, according to Paul, but the God who is also called Emmanuel makes himself known, incarnates himself, and says he declares himself. So, so throughout all of Scripture, I don't see mankind with the ability to somehow fathom the depths of God. Um, and, and it seems to me that even in the best philosophical systems in, in world history, in the best, um, you know, quote-unquote, the best uh, religious systems, you know, Hinduism and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Islam and, uh, you know, the, the kind of pseudo philosophy, religious system of Buddhism, that all of the ways that the being of God is hypothesized is essentially unknowable. And even to the Greek and the Roman mythological figures, these gods were really uninterested and um, distant on Mount Olympus, we live away. They're not really concerned with human affairs. They do their own thing. Um, and, you know, what they do is, <laughs> anyway. Um, but <laughs> they're, they're doing a lot of things that we would probably call unbiblical. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I mean, my, my point Bible, is that we just found yeah, upon. Yeah, that's in the Bible. Just, yeah, we just don't go there. Um, but the revelation of God is, is, inaugurated by God, instituted by God, and God declares himself. You know, Jesus, the word was with God, the word was God, and then you see the word coming and declaring, he has declared God to us. This is John 1, right? And um, and so, you know, we just see that the thread line in scripture is God reveals God. And then, and and, you know, that can happen, that happens obviously through the Bible, the Bible is the revelation of God, but that has continued throughout history to happen personally and phenomenally to individuals as they engage with the text, with Scripture, and with the the reality of God and God's um, God's inbreaking into our everyday life. That God longs it. One of the things that has happened, and I don't necessarily talk about this in the book, but it um, it really it, it bears teasing out. Um, is that the Western theology, in the terms of a popular sense, not necessarily a critique against any particular theologian, um, and uh, uh, oh, what's it? George Ladd talks about this actually, and you know, I was reading an article, uh, George Eldon Ladd, right? He talks about this. Um, he that Western theology has essentially placed man at the center of the salvation story. And and then we have a biblical escapism as our soteriology that we go to be with him when the actual revelation throughout scripture going from the, the, the walking in the cool of the day of the garden to the coming of the temple and God's presence dwelling with the people in the temple to Jesus as the temple dwelling with his people it, and, then, and then sending a spirit to inhabit us is that God longs to be at the center of his creation with his people. So God is the center of uh, the gospel. Man is not the center of the gospel. The revelation of God is the center of the gospel. And the depravity of mankind, like, okay, you don't, you know, I know um, you had mentioned like total depravity, right? You don't really need the scriptures to teach you total depravity. You just have to look at humankind. It doesn't take that much digging to realize that humankind is pretty depraved. Just have a kid. And just have a kid. Exactly. Yeah. Like, my goodness, my daughter is nine. And the, the things that she will lie about just to get out of being in trouble is like, why did you lie about that? It's not even a big deal. Like, 
you didn't did you put new socks on before you go to school? It's happened just this morning. Yes, I looked down. Your socks are not new. Why why would you even lie about that, right? Yeah, just to just so all you have to do is look no further than the person next to you. And it if 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 I like Josh and I were sitting next to each other and Josh knew my deepest, darkest secrets, and I knew his deep, deepest, darkest secrets, it we would have a hard time loving each other. It would have to require a ton of forgiveness. And I don't even know if it would be possible without the grace of God helping us. And and just imagine sitting next to, you know, someone who you person sitting next to you in a coffee shop, maybe a convicted felon, maybe guilty of pedophilia or something like that. You know, our inability to love one another in the face of actual information about that person's life. We had a situation happen with my son recently where, um, because, and I'm not going to go into the details, but because of um, an interaction with some kids, he got really sick. And it, it was just a, it was a, it ended up not being a big deal in the sense of the, you know, in the grander scheme of things, but he's in the hospital overnight and stuff like that. And I realized that the more I knew about the family who we had this interaction with, the more difficult it was going to be to forgive them. So I didn't want information. I just wanted to be able to go, I'm going to forgive them because you know this was their fault, but I don't want to hold anything against them. But if I have more information, it makes it more difficult. And so there's a limit to my tenderness. Um, and there's not a limit to God's tenderness, but you know, it's like, I don't, I don't need to look any further than the person down the street or my own self to recognize that we're totally depraved and we're in need of a savior and we're in need of the grace of God. And I can't reveal God to my God to myself. And it's no, it's no surprise to me um, that the best systems that have, that have ever been invented in terms of human philosophy or human religion outside of Christianity and God revealing himself have presented themselves with a distant, unknowable entity um, who requires a lot of rigmarole to go through. Yeah, yeah. And so it sounds like what you're, you're talking about this this revelation, this encounter, this experience of the spirit. It, it the, the To use an illustration, spirit's a wave, you're a surfer, you don't get to start the wave, you have no command or control over the wave, but you can have patterns and rhythms of life that will enable you teach you to ride said wave when it comes right like it's it's there it's present you can have these patterns if you if you don't have these patterns if you don't have these practices said wave comes you get crushed under the wave right like y- you can have a fruitful and enjoyable experience here or this thing can 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 really be more painful than it needs to be um uh, i i think might be a fair illustration and and please yeah, put absolutely. holes in that if you don't like it um but but then just additionally to that um you know, you mentioned in your book that trying to control these kinds of experiences, these kinds of encounters can can, can have some pretty negative side effects. Can you maybe unpack that a little bit for us? Because, again, I think it's probably pretty important that we we kind of destroy this idea of self-help on the front end of the episode. Because if we're talking about sanctification, we all are very aware. Like you said, if you're just awake, if you just have any observation, any kind of deductive skills whatsoever, you can see the sin that's in your life. You can identify it. You can go, wow, I know it's there. Uh, I really would like for it to leave. And living in this self-help right. culture, man, give me six steps so I can get this thing out, you know, and, and I'm going to do that <laughs> to, to the soonest of my ability. So so explain to us how control is just antithetical to this kind of Christian worldview of sanctification and spiritual formation. You know, I, I remember one time in a moment of prayer with the Lord, um, uh, the Lord said to me, you know, and this, this would be... Um, 
you know, this, this, this might put me in the heresy camp. If I say the Lord said to me, uh, my, of course, my, uh, not on the remnant radio, but I won't, uh, you know, certain, I won't tell, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> strange fire. I won't, I won't, I won't know. I won't write a letter to the editor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Um, but uh, I remember him saying to me, um, and he was speaking about my heart and the place I was at. This was uh, a number of years ago. And he said, Josh, um, your your attempts at controlling your life are based on your desire to be safe and your desire and your desire to be safe from harm everything i did in my life was to protect myself from um from potential hurt or for potential pain from relational pain from um, the disappointing myself, whatever it happened to be, that I tried to create a controlled environment in my own life. And and I have a control environment. I have a risk-free environment. If I have a risk-free environment, I have a pain-free environment. And so I, I organized my life in such a way. And I even found myself uh, at that point in my life, it was before I was married or kids or anything, I found myself, I would even try and engage in relationships I could control. Like not in the sense that I was trying to control the person, but this is, I knew I could keep myself free from harm. I could withdraw when I needed to. I didn't need to share when I needed to. I'd engage in friendships in the same way that, that everything about my life was based in control. And from the outside, people would look at me and I would have looked like a relatively healthy person. I was involved in my church. I was, you know, setting up and tearing down chairs at this point. Um, I, I would have been like, a part of leadership, pretty good candidate then as a single guy, like, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's get this guy into leadership and all of that. And all those things happened. But, but it was as the Lord really unpacked my fear of being hurt. And a lot of that fear of being hurt was rooted in, my parents were divorced when I was 18. It was rooted in that. It was rooted in some relationships that really hurt me when I was younger. Um, and, and so I, I, I did things in my life to institute a measure of control in my life so that I didn't have to be hurt. But what that did is it created a, a sterile environment inside of me. And so it didn't create a loving environment. It created a sterile environment. I was hard on myself. I was down on myself. Um, I was hard on the people around me. Uh, I, I was not a good leader. I was not an inspiring person. I was, I would not have been a good husband or father at that point. Um, you know, uh, but from the outside in, every metric would have looked like I was being a successful Christian uh, because I was doing the right things. I was involved in ministry school. I was uh, learning and growing. I was studying and all those kind of things. But when the Lord spoke that to me, it began to unpack this this tendency to keep myself safe um, and and to keep myself free from harm. And in keeping myself free from harm, and I talk about this in the book, that essentially, if, if I desire to live a pain-free experience, I'm going to live a love-free experience. Um, that it's going to be very difficult if I try and wall myself off from the ability to feel pain, that it's going to be very difficult to, to feel joy as well, that I have to kill all the emotions in order to create the sterile environment. And then I deny access not only to, not only to my kids and my wife and the people around me, I deny access to the Father, my Father in heaven. And, and so from, from all, all the pain that happened in my life, I learned to control myself. I learned to control my environment. And, um, and you know, I, looking at the self-help, the self-help, here's my six steps. Here's the things you need to do. 
um, I remember I was chatting with a, uh, I have a friend uh, who's a, uh, he's a licensed family and marriage therapist and just a wonderful Christian brother. Um, and he works with a lot of pastors and a lot of Christians, but he's been 30 year, uh, 30 year career working with adoption, uh, kids that have been through the adoption program that have been traumatized because of it or traumatized and put into the adoption program. Um, uh, and, and we were talking about the the kind of um tools he'll give to people right in the secular world like when you're having a panic attack slow your breathing down and it engages your autonomic nervous system and it can bring peace and it can help you uh process chaotic events and and there's very practical things that you can do right these 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 kind of six steps that a counselor might give you when you're dealing with panic attacks or anxiety or stress um and they may have some measurable impact because you are a human body with physical characteristics. And so there are ways you can engage those things, but you will never gain the perspective that God has by doing that. You're oriented around your best ability to help yourself and your best ability to help yourself. You are ultimately a fallible being. And this is where the the revelation of man's depravity is absolutely paramount to understanding our need for God is that I, I, if I am my own source of strength and I am my own source of healing and ultimately my own source of salvation, then I am going to fail myself miserably. And I am only as good as my ability to sustain myself. But if somehow I found an outside source of, um, uh, you know, thinking about uh, one of the desert fathers, Macarius the Great, he talks about um, the, even the even the need for the body to be sourced by outside sustenance that you can't cause your body to and he doesn't say it this way but you can't give your body calories outside of receiving something outside of yourself he sees that natural inclination in the body the need to eat in order to survive and sustain so is life in the spirit so is the emotional life that we absolutely need an outside source to um uh to come to grips with any kind of well one any kind of new understanding about myself um you know like when i start to see myself as a father i see myself as a father in light of the fact that i have kids something outside of myself begins to reveal to me something about myself i didn't know or my or in my in marriage something outside of myself my wife begins to reveal to me something i didn't know so ultimately I only come to grips with who I am in light of the other people in my life. Um, you know, actually, Bessel van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, he talks about this, that the way that the brain is, is, is made, you can almost say that a human being doesn't exist unless he's able to reference himself in light of other human beings. And so even right down to our very makeup requires something external to us. So, you know, just looking at that and I'm like, I, I can't do it by myself. So if I can't, if I recognize that I can't do it by myself, what's the ultimate source? The ultimate source would of course be God. Um, especially from the Christian worldview, the ultimate source would be God. And I, I need him. And I, it's not so much that I just need to know that scripture exists, but I need to know his abiding presence within me and that it exists and that he's with me and that he uh, sustains me. And that like um, David says in Psalm five, he says, I awoke and the Lord sustained me. Like that's a pretty powerful, uh, pretty powerful understanding or revelation. Um, 
to come to grips with that. Or, or Psalm 139, of course, is another one, which I, I think is probably littered throughout the book, different quotes from Psalm 139, is how much David recognized his, his, the very existence of who he was. One was pre-formulated by God. You know, before, before, before I was alive, you numbered my days. My days are written in your book. It says it a couple different times in the Psalms. Um, but even to the point where I can't go anywhere from your presence, I am literally sustained by you. And um, so the, uh, to me, the scripture narrative is clear. And it's, it, again, it's, it's not just coming to grips with the fact that there's words on a page. It's coming to grips with the fact that he's come, he's revealed himself, and then he's offered himself to me. So it, it sounds like when we're talking about this, you know, the, the spirit, you know, if you will, being that wave, that leading and guiding us into these areas that we didn't even really know that we're there, right? We just talked about sin at, right before I asked this question. I was like, well, if we all have any kind of self-awareness, we can kind of spot the sin in our life. And we have this like self-help mentality where we just want to fix it, right? But this is more talking about our sin nature, like more of a, our heart is deceitfully wicked. I don't really know my own heart. I mean, if someone's out there and they're, you know, watching pornography, they're beating their wife, they're a habitual liar. Like these are things where you go, you got to crucify your flesh, homie. Like there, there is something yeah, you yeah. can and, and should do. And it looks like confessing your sin, getting some counseling from your pastor, uh, repenting, yeah. believing the gospel. Those are active things that you should do. But what you're talking about is these kind of things that are in us that we can't even identify because our heart is so wicked. We can't even see the stuff that's there, the underlying stuff. And God brings you into these seasons where he exposes these things in your heart so yeah. that you can repent over them. Am, am I am I hearing you correctly? I want to make sure that, that people who are following don't hear us say you can't repent of your sin. You have to have some kind of mystical, mystical experience. But we're saying that these kinds of experiences with the Spirit identify and highlight the areas in our heart we didn't know were there. Yeah, there's there are like you said, there's obvious sins, right? Where and and Jesus talks about this, I think, in Matthew five, where he talks about degrees of anger and degrees of hatred, um, and uh, you know, where he says if if uh, there's, I think there's, if I if I remember right, when he's talking about anger and hatred, he uses different words for the way that you would speak out and lash out. Um, you know, there's there are there's obvious sin that it's like okay. Um, you should when you become a christian you should probably stop punching people and if you punch someone you should probably repent and apologize right this is just, just like look most of us could sneeze and fulfill seven of the ten commandments because of the culture we grew up in okay it, these aren't like the ones that are difficult are the ones paul specifically brings up in romans 7. i i read that it said don't covet and i went oh my goodness that's hard Right. But we grew up in a culture where most of us probably aren't going to be killing people. We're probably not going to be stealing things. Um, it, most of us grew up in a culture where most of the seven commandments are the thread line for for things that we shouldn't do. We know that it's been it's been hammered into our heads that um, we shouldn't do these things. And but it's the minute things that happen in our lives that we have no idea we're doing where we discredit ourselves. And um, it's my defensiveness. Um, it's, it's my, uh, when, you know, when, uh, when I'm insecure about my appearance and my kids want my affection and I turn away from them because of my own insecurity and I don't even realize I'm doing it, but I'm creating another systemic pattern in their life where they see, well, my dad doesn't care about me. You know, these are really minute things, but these minute things serve to, to 
keep that cycle going from one generation to another. And those are the kind of things that I can't reveal about myself to myself. Like you were saying, there's a, there's a word in the, in the book of Acts um, uh, that's consistently used, and it's the word cardionosis, and it means the knower of the heart. And, uh, and it's only ever applied to the nature of God, obviously. Um, you are not a knower of your own heart. And, and even if you go like, you know, some people are going to go, well, uh, the Bible says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Well, that's Old Testament, right? Now we've been given a new heart. We don't have the heart of stone. We have a heart of flesh, right? But that if you've been given a new heart, that means that it's not your own heart anyway. So you still don't know it. So you still need someone to reveal to you what's within you. And, um, uh, and again, like, like even the very, like I said, the very makeup of your brain works in such a way that you like try and here's a, here's just a thought experiment for anybody watching is try and describe yourself using language that doesn't incorporate how how you see yourself in light of other people you can't i don't think you can anyway like if i want to describe myself as loving i describe myself as loving in light of the people around me if i describe myself as compassionate i describe myself as compassionate in light of the people around us i need even on a basic human level, I need people around me to help identify myself. And, and so I'm, I am um, at best dimly aware that something is wrong within me. Um, and now, again, we're not talking about, like you said, there's, there is overt sin that is obvious, and the Bible says, stop it. Don't kill people, right? Stop doing that. Don't steal things, right? But when Paul talks about in Romans 7, the whole the, the famous passage, of course, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, um, he, he identifies, and you know, this would have to take longer in the episode to go through the whole thing, but suffice it to say, Paul identifies three laws in Romans 7 and 8. The first law is the law of sin and death, that here, or the law of, um, the, the holy law, that highlights to us sin. That's thou shalt not covet. And then he talks about another law working in the members, the law of sin and death. And then he talks about a third law in Romans 8, where he talks about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so we've got the law that teaches us that sin is no good. Then we've got something working within us that is actively working to destroy us. And this is where coveting comes from. And, um, and the only way he says that begins to work itself out is the spirit's life within the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which is the second time that he's referenced the spirit in Romans. The first time is, or maybe the third time, I think he greets them in the spirit is Romans five. When he talks about the love of the father being poured in to our hearts through the spirit who's been given to us. So it seems to me that there's a connection between the next reference to the spirit in Romans eight, previous reference to the spirit in Romans five. This is the love of the father or, you know, the image of the father, Jesus, the love being poured out in our life that begins to soften us, introduce us to who God is, introduce us to who we are, begins to really radically work transformation in our life, which is what you see throughout all of Romans eight is this consistent mode of transformation that's happening in the life of the spirit, which is, again, I would characterize that under the term encounter, but there's a broad definition of what encounter means. Yeah, and just for those who are listening right now with with identity and selfhood and those kinds of things, I'd really, really highly recommend you pick up this book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's another 
great, great book to talk about in this subject. This talks about identity um, as it's gone through a romanticism, Freudian thought, um, uh, the critical theories that are emerging today, and how today as a society in the West, as a whole in the West, we, we typically identify ourselves by our own preferences, what we want, what we desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is antithetical to the Christian worldview and the way that, yes. frankly, all humanity has viewed themselves in light of the whole uh, as an individual. Typical even therapy um, in the past was how do I integrate you into the whole, whether a lot of therapy today is actually how do I create a safe space for you as the individual and change everything around you, right? So um, it's a really interesting uh, book, sheds a lot of light on uh, modern self and identity, really, really insightful. So I'd highly, highly recommend it. Um, I was talking to Sam Storms about it. I think he's in his second read. He says it's like the best book written in the last decade. I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you, Sam. But uh, anyway, great book. Uh, highly recommend it. Anyway, um, when we're talking about uh, 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 selfhood, identity, you talk about like the, the the kind of wilderness season that God brings you into as a way to like get things out of you to kind of identify these things in your heart. You mentioned your own personal experience where God had to bring you into a kind of wilderness season so that you could see that you were protecting yourself, that you were like trying to try to keep everything safe. Now, when you mention that, a lot of people right now are living in this fantasy world where God doesn't do anything but shoot cotton candy and rainbows at me. And they're going to (laughs) call what what you just described, they're going to call it cosmic child abuse. They're going to say, you know, God's not this mean, angry dad in the sky who is going to make me suffer to teach me a lesson. So, so maybe, maybe unpack that, you know, talk about the, the gradations there. Is this really a merciful God teaching us things or is this just kind of some wacky child abuse going on? Well, I love your analogies, Josh. Yeah, Shoot. I got your back, buddy. You You're so distracted by the analogy. Like, ah, oh, he only throws cat and candy at rainbows. What, what am I yes. doing? Yes. Well, one, I would want to say, um, read the bible um Shots like I've, I've yeah there you go <laughs> just read and i, I think a, a, one of the places i um, look at uh, is hosea's language and which is which is fascinating language given that uh, what you just said you know i just actually just read through all of hosea in the last couple of days and um god out of his merciful tenderness it says um in hosea 2 given the the state of Israel and Israel's wandering heart away from God. And, you know, Hosea is inaugurated, of course, by saying, go marry a prostitute. And then this is how, this is how Israel is. Um, and in Hosea 2, he says, I will allure, I'll allure Israel into the wilderness and I'll give her the Valley of Achor as a door for hope. And I will speak tenderly to her there. The, the Valley of Achor, that word Achor literally means trouble. So I'm going to take her into the wilderness. I'm going to give her trouble. That trouble is going to become a door of hope. And that door of hope in that place, I'm going to speak tenderly to her there. So, you know, it's not either or. Like, I remember thinking about this. Like, when I I was young, and, and I'm still young. I'm 41, but so that's still pretty young. You know, you're quoting Sam Storms and stuff, so he's way older than I am. Um, and uh, As long as we're grading the, on a curve. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, we are. <laughs> that's right. Um, but when I was a little boy and I did something bad, ran around the house and acted out, broke a lamp or whatever, you know, and incurred the, um, the consequence of punishment for my parents. 
and my mom, you know, my mom would try and punish us. She would spank us or whatever. Um, and my brother and I tended to just laugh when she would do it, uh, which never really went well for us. I don't know why we did that. Um, uh, but then she would, she'd utter really the fateful words, right? That just wait until your father gets home. And that would strike fear in us when those words, just wait till your father gets home. Because we know when our father gets home that we would be really in trouble. And, and I was reflecting on this a while back that my fear of my father's punishment never negated, negated my awareness of his love for me. It wasn't one or the other. And so I, we like, we'd like, we want to see God as so binary. Like, well, he's just either love or he's either hate or wrath, right? He's, he can't be one, he can't be both in the same person as if like, I can't get frustrated with my kids because they're doing something that is going to small example, but destroy the trampoline we have in the backyard for them by pulling on, pulling down on the, they love hanging from the side, um, you know, the side netting to keep them from wildly falling over the side and hurting themselves. So when they do that, they get in trouble. It's my love that corrects them and chastises them and says, okay, off the trampoline, you're off the trampoline for five minutes. And they might think that that's being mean, but that's because they don't understand I'm trying to keep them safe. And so in trying to keep them safe, I'm teaching them boundaries. I'm teaching them the limits. I'm teaching them to care for themselves so that they don't get hurt, so that they don't go off and do something even more wildly inappropriate. And, you know, it, it's like it can be both and. My, 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 the consequences and the punishment I have to institute in order to teach them can be a result of my love. It doesn't have to be either or. And so that's what, what happens is we have a simplistic view of God and we make, it's like, it's like the, you know, in a way it's like the Nietzsche quote, right? Like, is it, I think it's Nietzsche that, no, it's not Nietzsche. Correct me with who it is. It's God is dead. Um, no, not that one. Is that, uh, man, God made man in his image and then God turned around and returned the favor. Uh, or man turned around and, uh, to return the favor. Man turned around and return yeah. the favor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that Nietzsche? I think it I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I, yeah. It's I, a great I quote, though. That out of, yeah, it is a good one. But we've done that, right? So we oversimplify who God is. And we, so he's just shun, sunshine and rainbows. And so then he must be an abusive father if he would allow bad things to happen um, without realizing that after five or six times of my kids acting out, sometimes the easiest way to teach them a lesson is to let them hurt themselves and to do it in a controlled way so that I know if they hurt themselves doing that, I can be right there. I can comfort them and I can say, see, we probably shouldn't have done that. And we can talk about it, right? That's not bad parenting. That's not abusive parenting. That's recognizing that there's a lesson they need to learn to prepare them for life so that they can have the proper boundaries and respect so they won't hurt themselves again or hurt other people. And um, that, that it's that's not abuse. That's just anybody that's had kids know that that's a valid way. I would hope that they wouldn't, but sometimes that's what happens is they hurt themselves in doing it. Yeah. Give us some, some insights on inner healing real quick, because I know I'm, I'm cool with going a little bit over today. I don't have stuff going on if, if, if you're cool. So um, let's push it a little bit. But um, when we talk about inner healing, a lot of theories and thoughts emerge all of a sudden about inner healing. There's a lot of entire ministries that are just dedicated to inner healing um, you know, I'm, I'm cautious of inner healing because of personal experiences that I've had sure. with inner healing ministries. If I were to like simplify inner healing, I'm going, look, in the same way that I believe that I can have a broken arm and God could heal me of my broken arm, 
I believe I can have a, a broken relationship or unforgiveness in my heart, a, a kind of great, uh, a great pain that God could heal in a moment, right? I'm not overcomplicating it because healing means healing. And even Sozo in James 5 really speaks to a wholeness of healing, right? That can really affect all of us. I'm not overcomplicating yeah. it. I don't necessarily want to go like through some kind of prophetic labyrinth of, you know, find this lie and sin and all these other things. I'm a right. little bit more cautious of some of that. I'm thrilled with repentance. And if God wants to reveal that, I want to go for it. Um, but maybe could you unpack your position? Totally undermine yeah. everything I said, too, if you disagree with me. I've got no problem. That's kind of what we do on this show, but just you know, yeah, yeah. bearing my heart out there for people who are watching. Uh, explain to us what inner healing is as you perceive it. How would you encourage people going about it? You know, um, it's, a, it's a great question. And it, it's like you could kind of call the last 10 years the rise of the inner healing ministries. Um, and, and you know, there there's there's to me, there's good things about some of those things. And I remember having um, a friend who, uh, again, another counselor friend who was also running a Sozo ministry, you know, based on the Sozo inner healing training from Bethel. And uh, they, they had the same people coming to them over and over and over again with the same problems. And after the sixth time of trying to go through these prayer things, this guy's also a, um, a therapist, like an, an actual licensed counselor. And he just goes to these people. He says, you don't need, you don't need inner healing prayer. You need a counselor to help you deal with life's issues. So what's, what happens in inner healing is it gets characterized as a one size fits, one size, one size fix everything. One size fits all. It fixes everything. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and so, well, okay, we'll just, and I've heard so many people just kind of, um, uh, uh, uh passively say something like, well, we'll just get rid of that lie. You know, we just get rid of that. I'm like, well, it doesn't really work that way. Um, you know, there's deep seated, deep seated hurts and pains I have in my life that it's not so much that I navel gaze and find all the different problems with myself again, because I can't, I can't look at myself and find all the things I believe that are wrong about myself. Um, I can look at myself and realize that I'm a pretty, I've got some issues that need to be worked on. Um, but, I'll, and I'll, I'll tell a story. Maybe that'll be helpful too. And just kind of clarify my position on inner healing. I'm, I'm an advocate for inner healing, but um, with limits as well in terms of how we approach that. Um, so I, when I was, um, uh, this was probably about 15 years ago, when I really first started engaging uh, going back to church and all this kind of stuff. I had said earlier that the, the Lord spoke to me and, um, he was starting to address some of the hurts in my life from my parents' divorce. And within about six months, I was probably about 25 or so when, when all of this started happening. Um, and I start, um, going to a Bible study and I'm engaged with my church a bit, but I'm like, I'm like a couple weeks, I'm really good. And then a couple weeks, I'm just like, I'm out drinking again. I'm doing all the stuff that I shouldn't be doing. And, and I'm trying to hide all that part of myself from all the people that I'm now starting to become friends with. And so I was, I was really living a dual life at that point and was really suffering because of it. And in the midst of all that, I, I had um, two dreams that were very instructive to me. So this is, to me, this is inner healing, but this wasn't an inner healing ministry that I was connected with. This is just life lived in God and him helping you deal with the pains in your life and coming and bringing those to 
a realization of who he is, which I would probably characterize as bringing those to the foot of the cross in repentance because of the way that you thought about yourself. I might not have had that language when it happened, but that's essentially what happened is I have these two dreams. And in the first dream, um, really simple, I'm watching my dad in the dream and he is preaching. And my dad was an elder at a church. So, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily uncommon for him to preach on a Sunday occasionally. And I was so angry, like lividly angry. And I woke up from that dream, just really ticked off at my dad. So mad at my dad. And just, oh, it's always like my dad trying to tell me how to live my life. That just makes me so angry. He's always doing that to me. And so then I go back to sleep and, and I worked for my dad at this point too. Um, and, uh, so then I go back to sleep the, and the next night, you know, life goes on. I go through the day. The next night I have a dream and in the dream, I am, uh, being chased by a demon and I'm running down corridors and I'm looking around behind myself and I can see the shadow of it coming around each corner. And I'm terrified out of my mind. And I have nowhere to turn. All I can do is run down corridors. And I am absolutely astronomically afraid. I've never felt that kind of fear in my life. I woke up. It's like three o'clock in the morning. I was terrified out of my mind. This fear is there. I was convinced. It was so tangible and real. I was convinced that there was a demon hovering over me with a knife, you know, like the, the old stalker flick or something right and um i was convinced i was gonna die and uh, and those those dreams hunted me for weeks like they were so back-to-back nights such intense emotional experiences and i couldn't i just couldn't i it was like these things mean something and i couldn't figure out what they meant i was thinking about them i was thinking about them i was thinking about them and they really it's funny how much they caused me to ponder god because I had these two dreams, you know, I, I think that the, in the scriptures, it talks about how, um, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh were both troubled in spirit over the dreams they had. And I really felt troubled in spirit. I understand that language after this, I, I was really wrestling with them. And I, and it dawned on me one day, about two weeks later, as I was, uh, contemplating these things, I think I was actually in a worship service when it dawned on me, um, that the whole reason in the second dream, I had nowhere to turn is because I was so angry at my dad in the first dream. And it dawned on me about, because I was really angry with my dad. And um, I, I remember looking at those dreams and going, I have a lot of anger towards God. I have a lot of anger towards my dad. And I have a lot of anger towards God. And until I deal with my anger towards my dad, that's probably going to reflect on my relationship with God because I didn't have an answer in the second dream and I needed to deal with the anger in my first dream. So I called my dad up um, when I realized that and I, and I apologized to him and said, I've held this anger towards you. And uh, actually there's a longer story to it than that. But my point is, again, that was a significant moment of inner healing for me, a significant moment of inner healing in my relationship with my dad. It began to restore my relationship with my dad. And it began to unpack my relationship with God the Father. Um, but that was only one microcosm of a moment, right? There's now multiple moments along the journey where I start to come to grips with the depth of how, my, how much I was hurt and the depth I withheld myself from my own dad. And there was a lot of healing that had to go uh, into the relationship with my dad. And a lot of it had to do with how scared I was of being hurt again by him. 
because my parents had divorced. That was devastating for me. And all every step along the way was a step where the Father comes, God the Father comes, reveals something about my own disposition, my own weakness, my own fear, and, and I then had a choice to make. The choice was essentially repent of the fear and then move myself towards my father and when it comes to the relationship with my dad i have a great relationship with my dad now anybody that follows what we do realize i do weekly live streams with my dad um where we talk about uh dreams and and following god and things like that uh, my dad was one of the main editors for the book like the transformation book so my my point is i thoroughly believe in inner healing i don't it's hard to make it a commodity and it's hard to legislate it and say well here just do this and this is what's going to happen because to to quote john sanford one of the uh the elijah house guy kind of known for codifying inner healing in the 20th century um to really giving it some scriptural support he essentially called it sanctification of the heart uh, or circumcision of the heart and cutting off and cutting away and or or another way he would characterize it as dying to the old man and and to him the central facet of that was bringing to death the things of the old man and bringing them to the foot of the cross. And I'm like, I can get behind that language, but again, you can't legislate it because it is the father revealing it's the father coming. He alone is the healer. The person in front of you is not the healer. And so it, it has to be, it, it, if, if inner healing quote unquote as a ministry is going to work, it can't be because we have great tools. It has to be because all we're doing is just like in spiritual direction. I don't really see that much of a difference between spiritual formation, spiritual direction, prophetic ministry, and inner healing, because all of them, the, the, the main impetus should be, how are we helping people connect with the life of God? And when that connection happens, all the things start to work themselves out. And it may take a long time and we probably need help along the way. We're going to need people to weigh in on that. And we're going to need additional prayer and support within community and loving people to demonstrate to us what it means to be loved and what it means to connect our hearts to God and what it means to live like that. But, but that's part of the reason for the transformation book is to say, look, guys, there's not really a big difference between these things. And so you may be in an inner healing ministry over here, prophetic ministry over here, spiritual formation and spiritual direction over here. But really what we're trying to do is connect people with the heart of God, the life of God, and healing is the byproduct of that because he is the healer. Um, but again, it's not, it's not something you can say, okay, here's my, here's my six prayer tools and that's going to mm -hmm. fix you. It, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Maria, she asked a good question and I responded to it via text. And I think it'd be worthy of mentioning just for people who are watching this, re-watching it, not watching the live chat. Maria said, wouldn't a, uh, a personal Christian counselor be more useful than a ministry, like an inner healing ministry. I, I would say it like this, and I said this in the chat, I want to go up and ask for prayer. Um, like, let's say I had cancer. Um, I'm going to go to a doctor, and I'm going to let that doctor treat me uh, because I believe in doctors. I believe in the common grace of medicine. But simultaneously, I am going to answer every prayer call when the, the church offers prayer because I know there's something wrong and I, and I believe that God can heal me. And, and if I know, Hey, there is some unforgiveness in my heart. There is an addiction of X, Y, and Z in my heart. I'm going to go to a Christian counselor. Like I would go to a doctor because that's the common grace that God has provided for me. 
But simultaneously, I believe that God can deliver you of your addiction in a moment. And I believe that God can can help you forgive your dad in a single moment. I think that those kinds of things happen supernaturally, but shouldn't be looked at at the detriment or the the neglect of the common graces in which God has given to us. So it, yeah. for me, it's a yes and amen. And I, I really, like, like Josh said, I, I would really hesitate to go sit across from a person that's got no training, no qualifications, and what's really just psychology and counseling and and have them prophetic. I mean, the the inner healing ministry that I am aware of, that I was around, that I had family members that had bad experiences with, um, I mean, they basically just sat in a circle and God revealed things to them. And they told this 14 year old girl, oh, you've got a daddy problem and you've got to you've got to go to the father as this or whatever, because you have this problem with your dad. She had like the best dad in the world, but she walks out of this meeting thinking that God has told her she has a problem with her dad. It caused problems. She went in there fine and left worse because yeah. thus saith the Lord. Yeah, screwed that, it up. There is therein lies the problem is, yeah, again, it's not it can't be a legislated reality. It can't be. I have an idea about what you should do. It's it is, and this is where it a good Christian counselor, on some level, is going to varying vary between giving tools for life to deal with stress and anxiety, to help you calm down, to help you process things, going to give you prayerful tools to help you connect your heart with God, going to encourage you to moments of prayer where moments of quote unquote intimacy to use, you know, one of the buzzwords and, and um, it's not a either or that I'm going to say, go to a counselor. And if that counselor doesn't incorporate prayer, life with God, knowing the father's heart and um, discovering a rhythm in your life that opens yourself up to, um, uh, you know, or I shouldn't say open yourself up, but just give space for God to move in your life and to touch your heart you know, like, I probably don't want to go to that counselor. Um, if the, if it's just going to be a, I'm just going to give you some advice. Um, so I, I'm not denigrating counseling at all, but the best counselors I know will do both. And is That's right. let's talk about the issues. Let's give you some tools, but let's help you understand what it means to connect with the heart of God, what prayer looks like and how it, well, how it means for the Holy spirit to touch you, what that means for the Holy spirit to touch you. And, um, and so if inner healing is comprised of, that kind of thing, and the and the person is allowing any moment to be initiated by the Holy Spirit, and it's not well, okay. Well, I think you need to say this, and this is the issue that you have. That's called spiritual manipulation, and mm-hmm. oftentimes it happens because I think my gift is so great. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think my gift is so great. I think God is so great, and um, so anytime someone comes to me and says, "Can you help me with this?" I'm going to say. Here's some prayerful tools that you can use in your personal time with the Lord and um, to offer your heart to him, turn your heart to him. And it's no different than the people I've helped with. I mean, the Desert Fathers have given me great advice for helping people who struggle with pornography, sure. yeah, which is, again, another, another let's, that's another healing issue. We need to heal the heart. And um, there's malformation of the heart. We need to heal it. You know, this gets into a whole, a much broader topic of, you know, you go, what is sin? You know, let's, uh, let's just, you know, throw that one out there, right? What is yeah, sin? Yeah, let's talk about archaeology is... an hour and nine minutes in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> in the next few minutes, right? But but it, the what it boils down to is we have a lot of misconceptions. 
when we hear the term inner healing, we think, oh, those are, like you said, people have had that kind of experience and they go, well, my person, my friend was more hurt. So the same has happened with deliverance ministry. Well, it's deliverance ministry. Well, that person came away thinking they had demons when they were perfectly fine beforehand. It, it, a, a lot of times it boils down to maturity of the person. Again, I love, I love your language on the remnant radio. When you talk about weighing prophetic words, a plurality of elders, relationship with a local community, having pastoral figures weighing in on this stuff. It's not just your fly-by-night person who has no accountability anywhere, but it should be someone who walks within community that's trusted by the community, that evidences the life of faith, that evidences the life of the Holy Spirit, that has a consistent track record of helping people, but not in the sense of, I'm going to now tell you what your problem is, but I'm going to give you some resources so in your own life, you walk in a way where your heart is connected with God's heart. And there's measurable increase and change in that regard. Amen. There's there's one thing that we haven't talked about yet, Josh, that, that's as a, yeah. it's an interest to me personally, before we wrap up, um, you know, I, I have read, well, I say I've read, when I hear sanctification talked about, when I hear um, or, or read sanctification talked about, I find that a lot of the evangelical space talks about sanctification and, and basically limits it to the moral um, the, the moral correction of our sinful nature, making look, looking more and more like Jesus morally and ethically, of which I will say yes and amen. But right. it, it seems as if it's limited to that. And, and last year or the year before, I stumbled upon this thing, theosis, when I was trying to respond against the little God doctrines of the hyper charismatics, just wanting to absolutely right. smash it and learning that there are guys like Athanasius who would say things like God became man so that man could become God. And then reading the East about the energies and essence, it's just really conflated, really uh, involved sort of thing just to realize that, man, they're talking about sanctification, but they're talking about yes. the sanctification of the energies of God. Um, infusing yeah. Christian persons. Can you talk to us just a little bit, not about being little gods, not about speaking things into <laughs> existence, none, none of that, okay? But but in talking about partaking of that divine nature, that when we talk about gazing at Christ, seeing Christ, again, I'll, I'll get on my hobby horse here, I think of Moses, I think of Stephen. These guys, their faces glowed. There was something about the life of God that was being lived through these men as they had these encounters with the Lord. Yeah. So not just the moral piece, but that kind of spiritual energy, like life of God living through us. Just talk to us about that. Yeah, well, you know, I like the example. Uh, you know, we were going back and forth a little bit earlier today talking about some of this stuff. I had said, I like the example of Peter um, and how Peter, by all metrics, seems like a pretty good upstanding Jew. Um, and, you know, proficient in the trades, uh, in, a, in the sense of being a fisherman, uh, responds to the call of Jesus and is passionate and is following Jesus. And, and even when everybody leaves, Peter's still around. So, you know, we admire Peter at this point. He seems like, you know, he's got the, he's got, he probably looked like a um, morally competent person, we'll say. Um, and then you get to the, the, lead up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And you get Peter having this moment where um, he says to Jesus, Jesus says, who, you know, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, which, which in a way is a, um, a tacit early 
uh, admonition of the Nicene Creed, which took the church a number of hundreds of years to work out. But Christ is a distinctly human figure. Son of the living God is a distinctly divine figure. So he's, he's in a way he is, he is giving a Nicene formula in a way. Um, and so Jesus goes, only my father in heaven could reveal this to you, right? Well, almost in the next breath, Peter corrects Jesus. And this is really fascinating that Jesus, Peter recognizes the divine and the human in Jesus or something of another worldliness in Jesus. However, whatever, to whatever degree Peter understood it. Um, and then in the next breath, he's comfortable correcting Jesus saying, stop talking about dying and all these kind of things. Because from his, his worldview, Jesus was going to be the warrior king who would raise up an army and overthrow the Roman nation. And so Jesus couldn't die. Like, that's crazy. If he's going to be this, he can't die. So it takes a lot of brashness to stand before Jesus, who you just admitted had something of an otherworldly quality to himself, um, and then correct him. And on some level, maybe Peter sees him as a peer. Maybe Peter sees him. He 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 feels it. He feels it okay to correct Jesus. Then they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, I love how the Bible says Jesus led them up the mountain. You can't get up the mountain yourself. You know, Psalm twenty four says, "Who will ascend the mountain of the Lord? He who has a clean hands, a pure heart, never lifted his soul to an idol, and never sworn deceitfully." That means we're all out. So who who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Jesus, and we follow him. And then and Peter, when the divine nature is revealed to him, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter falls on his face and the voice of God comes. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, not listen to Moses and Elijah, which was obviously um, a, a, I'm a, not, maybe not obviously, but a radical statement to a Jew not to listen to Moses and Elijah, but to listen to Jesus. Uh, Moses and Elijah summed up everything to, to a Jew in the first century. So, um, Peter was a good upstanding moral person and, um, he felt it within himself to correct God and the process in his life. I love how Peter starts the call of Peter starts with Peter. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And then at the end of his, of his, his tenure with Jesus, Jesus tells him the way he's going to die. He doesn't call Peter in the initial call is not. Peter, you're going to die. Come follow me. Um, the initial call is you're going to do great things. And then, so my point is that on every stage of the journey with Peter, Jesus is interacting with him at a different maturity level. And Peter's realizing different things. He's growing in his awareness of who Jesus is, of what Jesus is about, of the impact upon his life, all these kind of things. There's a journey and a process. And what what it seems to me what we've done in the 21st century is we've kind of flattened that whole process. And um, we turned the, the salvation experience into a model where you say a prayer and you read your Bible every day and you stack some chairs and then you wait until the end. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was in the, in the area, in the era of um, revival meetings or, or revival meetings is the wrong term, but, um, you know, stadium meetings and things like that, the Billy Graham crusades and all that. It was really revival culture. Awesome. Like it worked really well, right? It was a really good model, but it wasn't the model for all times, for all people forever. Like, like Count Zinzendorf, one of the great evangelical theologians to, as a missionary, right? Talks about salvation, um, in his, in his lectures in Germany. Um, he talks about salvation being a moment where 
we're convinced of, and I'm paraphrasing it, but a moment where we're convinced that the Holy Spirit has come to us, right? He, he talks about a wordless encounter that brings about salvation. Again, my language, summing up and paraphrasing what he's saying in one of his lectures. So, you know, this, this whole thing where sanctification becomes just a, a good becoming more morally competent. Um, again, I'm, I'm pretty well convinced that pretty much any 21st century human being, regardless of whether a Christian or not, could sneeze and fulfill seven out of the 10 commandments. Um, and, and it doesn't require the, the, a radical work of grace to not murder someone. It just requires a fear of the legal system. Um, it doesn't require a radical work of grace to not steal something. It just requires a fear of the legal system. And there's a number of things that have been worked in us in that way. So what does require a radical work of grace? What requires a radical work of grace, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to almost verbatim Dallas Willard on this one, is that a radical work of grace is required to turn the other cheek when your enemy strikes you. Nobody spontaneously turns the other cheek when, so when your enemy strikes you. That requires something outside of yourself. Um, and that requires you being formed in such a way that you're the kind of person that when someone strikes you, you don't strike them back. That is not natural to Western civilization. That is not natural to the human disposition. Um, and, and so that in that whole journey, in that process, you know, sanctification, yes, we become more moral. But it's not so much, I mean, I, I only think we become more moral because we become more aware of God's activity within us. Um, I love that, um, that one, of the, one of the ways the Holy Spirit is described in 1 Corinthians 12 is it says there are many activities or the, word, the Greek word energema. There are many energies of the Holy Spirit moving within us. And, um, and so when, when the Holy Spirit comes, guess what happens? 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Brethren, about spiritual things, I don't want you to be uninformed. And he talks about the way the Holy Spirit manifests. And then, bam, right smack dab in the middle, he talks about the life of love, with the, which is a life of sacrifice, which is only seen typified in the person of Jesus. And you're just going, yeah, this is not about tithing well or opening the door for people or watching the right kind of movies. Sanctification is coming to grips with the fact that... Um, I have no power within myself to change. God alone can do that. And as I'm changed, I become more like him. And my ultimate destiny in becoming more like him is to sacrifice myself on behalf of others. And laying myself down, laying my agendas down, laying my will down, preferring one another, building one another up. And this, this is, I think, the language of Paul when he talks about in Philippians 2, the, the let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. He talks about, even prior to that, he talks about... Um, uh, you know, uh, prefer one another as, as better than yourselves or esteem one another as more than yourself. And, and this, is the, this is the thread in Christianity that we tend to miss because we do think it's just, we, we do tend to think of it in terms of um, uh, moralizing our life. Like we do all the right things and it just doesn't seem consistent with the biblical ethic and it doesn't seem consistent with Christian history. I mean, men and women in Christian history caught a taste of something so otherworldly that it radically transformed them. Um, one guy, Abba, um, Abba, because he's a desert father, they referred to that way. Um, 
uh, Abba, uh, oh, it's right there. Um, anyway, whatever his name is, I've got it on the tip of my tongue and I can't think of it. I've got two other names, but he says, um, if I could exchange my body with that of a leper, with that of a leper, um, that would make me happy for that indeed is perfect charity. And, you know, that's just not something that you get by living a moral life. You don't come to grips with that kind of love, that kind of self-sacrifice with living, um, you know, with, with attempting to not sin. Because that's really what we mean when we say um, becoming more moral is, you know, in, in, in broadly speaking, in 21st century um, North America or Western civilization, or the 21st century in general, we could say this, is people generally say, they'll say something like this, is I'm, you know, I'm a relatively good person. Why wouldn't I go to heaven? Why would God send me? Why would God send me to hell? Um, I'm a pretty good person. And when they say that they're a pretty good person, what they mean by that is not that, essentially what they mean by that is that um, it's like a zero sum is um, I keep to myself. I, I, I don't punch anybody. You know, I don't murder anybody. I'm a pretty good person, right? By pretty pretty good person, they're not saying that I live myself, I live my life in a way that love is evinced through me, which is what the Bible calls good. Greater good knows knows no one than this, right? That a man laid out his life for his friends. Um, you know, people don't mean that they're a good person in that sense. They mean they're a good person in the sense that they don't rock the boat. Um, I don't do anything all that bad, so therefore I'm good. So we define the moral life as abstaining from bad things, not doing good things. And, and that's bled into Christianity is as long as I don't do the wrong things, I'm being moral. No, 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 that's not what the Bible defines as moral. The Bible defines as moral as preferring one another above yourself and laying your life down for one another. That's the ultimate example of morality. And we only see that in the person of Jesus. It's not a thing that comes natural to human beings. It's a thing that, like I would lay my life down for my wife because I practiced love for her daily. I wouldn't lay my life down for my wife before I ever met her, right? It's just not a thing I would have done, but I love her. And so I'll sacrifice myself for her. And it's a planned reality because the life of, because, and this is where we see Jesus. We're caught up with a glimpse of his beauty. Everything changes in our life. Like Peter, he falls down like Isaiah. I'm undone. I find a whole new mission for life. Everything changes and I lay my life down and I can't help but lay my life down again and again and again because I want to help other people. Yeah. And you mentioned, okay, so like in this whole process, it's like I'm positioning myself to, to grasp, to, 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 to catch a glimpse of the beauty of God, because it's in that, that glimpse of God's beauty that it actually changes me on a fundamental level. And, and when I think of that, I think of Moses, it's like you've talked about it in the loving thy neighbor sense, but like the first commandment right before it, you know, loving God, it's like, yeah. It's like Moses, are, you know, in, in Exodus 33, if I have shown favor in your sight, then show me favor in your sight. He uses the argument that he knows God as the foundation yeah. to know God more. And yeah. I, I'm reminded of one of the mystics, uh, it might have been Bernard of Clairvaux, who talks about metals. And when two metals are yes. of really opposite substance, it's impossible to get those things to mix. And we'll never be of the same essence as God ever. But, but the thing about God's life being lived in us and through us, the energies of God infusing us is that his energies do infuse us to the point that we're more like him. 
And the greater we are like him, the greater intimacy we will have with him. And in the grand scheme of things, what will remain forever and ever and ever, though we can love the poor and give our life down for those who strike us in the face, like, like we will always have the poor, right? But Christ, you know, Christ in in the age to come, the poor, the poor will not, won't exist, but in the age to come, Christ will be there. We will worship with Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. And even when the woman is, you know, breaking the alabaster jar at his feet, his response is like, yeah, you're going to have the poor forever, but, but I'm only going to be here for a little while and, and allowing this idea that the energies of God, and, and I've used this term energies a couple of times. Um, I really love the illustration of the iron and the fire. Okay. Um, yeah. if, I've, I've said it for people who know my pet peeve, you know, on the show, this is just something I'm fascinated with and really interested in, but like you put the iron in the fire and you pull the iron out of the fire. If you leave it in there long enough, it'll be red. Like the fire's red. It'll be hot. Like the fire's hot. If you leave it in there long enough, it might even glow like the fire glows. But the iron never becomes the fire, but it becomes like the fire. And I think that this idea of spending time with God, trying to to grasp the the intimacy with God and who he is and get glimpses of that beauty, it, it almost in itself is an argument to know him more. And to be closer with him. And um, as I, I uh, have you ever read Divine Romance by Gene Edwards, Josh? I, I, no, not, I've read God. a number of Gene Edwards things, but not that one in particular. We, I'm familiar we, with it though. I just started reading it again. And the conversation that God has with Adam when Adam is, he's going around in the garden. He's like, every ish has its isha. And he's like, I, I see the, the tigers and they have the lady tigers and the rhinos and the lady rhinos. And he's like, where's my other half? You know, where's my other, the other part of me? And this idea that because we are in, because Adam was in an image, he needed something after his image to commune with. And that's what his heart mm-hmm. was longing for. And this idea yeah. that God is starting creation beginning with the end in mind to have a bride that's holy and pure and spotless that in a sense reflects his image, right? We're made in his image and that's what he's seeking. And, and I, I look at this whole idea of the energies of God, the sanctification can't be limited to me just being more moral. It's good. And I want that. I want to be more moral, but I want to be more like God so that I can know God like that in and of itself. What could, what could the mystery of God unfold for us in knowing him all the more? Um, yeah, I, I want to bite the dust being like, I knew as much of God in this life as was allotted to me. Um, or like, or like Moses when he bites the dust and he says, you know, you're, you've quoted the Exodus 33 one, right? You've known me by name and found favor in my sight. So show me your glory, right? Go before me, lead our people, show me your glory. Then at the end, when he's on top of the mountain and God's showing him the promised land, saying you won't go in there, Moses says this, you know, this is some, what, 40 years later, 38 years later or so, something like that, 30 years later. And it goes, oh, Lord, that's my favorite prayer of Moses. Oh, Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness. Yes. I'm like, whoa, okay, that's a different, that's a whole nother level of thinking about knowing God. At the end of, what was it, Moses 118 when he passed away? Something like that. And, oh, Lord, you have just begun to show your servant your greatness. Like, let that be my mind. Like, I, when I was 25, I thought God showed me his greatness. Right? Yeah. I now know. Right? And I now I'm going, oh, there's so much more to this mystery of who God is. And um, and as I, I, I was, I had this thought last night as I was kind of wrestling with sleep and and all of that. I just realized, you know. I am not in and of myself a tender person. Um, 
but the more time I spend immersed in the presence of Jesus, the more tender I am. The less time I spend immersed in the presence of Jesus, the less tender I am. And it, it, my, I realized, I just this moment, right, where I realized my tenderness is anchored in his tenderness towards me. And so, and so I do want to, like I was, like, like you had said, I was anchoring it in the loving your neighbor thing. And so I want to correct that just a little bit because the only reason I want to love the neighbor is not, I don't really like people that much. It's because I love him. That's right. No, no, I knew what you're saying. Yeah, but it, but it's, and it, but it does bear clarifying because all, everything like my desire, even just to write a book is to just say, look, look at him, look at him. Look at like when, okay, the, the tagline for our ministry, Win Ministries, um, is equipping people to experience God, right? There's a second part of that, because that was a statement the Lord said to me 10 or 15 years ago about my life. Josh, you are to equip people to know me. And, and then he said this, he said, but not for their sake, for mine. And I went, oh my goodness, my life of helping people engage the life of God isn't because I love people so much. It's because he deserves it because he longs for them because he's passionate about that bride. As you said, and you guys talked about this a little bit in um, when you guys were pulling apart song of Solomon in your episode with Mike Bickle, it was just beautiful that that whole thing you, I think you said it, Josh, where you said the bride goes out and when he tells or when she tells the other women about how lovely her lover is, they're oh, yeah. like, show us. I was like, well, that was profound when you said that. Um, and and it's just like, yeah, if we can just share how beautiful he has been to us. Because his beauty, and this is my point in, in the book and looking at Isaiah, is Isaiah sees something so profoundly transcendent that the only way he can describe it is to tell people how it impacted him, is I'm undone. and And if we just caught that, that my story about who God is, is one, of course it's informed by scripture, but it comes through the lens of who I am and how he's come to me and how I've come to realize that is the God of scripture because he came to me. And, you know, like the way I tell you about who he is, is the way I tell you about how he came to me. Mm-hmm. And then I look back at scripture and go, yeah, that's consistent. And, um, and then, I, then it makes me want to know scripture even more because I'm going, what else am I missing about what's been revealed about him in the divine word? Going, show me more, God, about your nature. Show me more about your nature. So I devour the Bible because I want to know more of him. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going to give this kind of closing thought, this kind of like ribbon for me, and I'm going to ask you to do the kind of same thing, Josh. I, I see a couple people in the comments, you know, like, what's more glorious than Jesus? You know, Darren is asking, you know, man, if you want to see the glory of God, look at the face of Jesus. And I'm like, yes and amen. And I hope people don't hear me really encouraging you to just have mystical experience after mystical experience, though I think they're profound and wonderful, and I hope we all have them. Um, I am encouraging us to look at sanctification holistically. It's like the table. Yes. And I, I was talking to Francis Chan about this. It's on our, our interview on Patreon already. And we're going to release it this week on YouTube. So you guys will get to see it if you, if you haven't checked it out already. But I was, I was just saying, you know, as an evangelical, not evangelical, as a, as a charismatic, I was told that um, God inhabits the praise of his people. So how do I incur, encounter his spirit? It's through worship. That's when I worship, boom, God's presence is there. He inhabits that praise. Cool. So, but then, you know, in the evangelical space, they're like, we encounter 
the spirit through the word of God, because, you know, it's, it's the honest it's breathed out by God. It's like, okay, cool. So, so I'm going to read the Bible. And, and what happened is I attached my faith to that. I believed that right. I encountered the spirit in worship and I experienced God in worship. I believed I encountered the spirit in the word of God. And I did encounter the spirit through that. And I was talking to Francis about that because I used to take the table and, you know, I take the bread and I take the wine and I just, you know, it was just a stale cracker and just grape juice. And it just, it tasted bad. It wasn't even good cracker. It wasn't even good grape juice. It just, it was, it was a symbol that I had to like labor through because it Go wasn't through, very yeah. enjoyable. And, uh, we did it once a month. It was a symbol. So we, we had to do it. Jesus told us to. Okay. But, but when right. I realized that there's an Think actual fellowship. Think about how bad you are when you do it also, right? Think about how bad you are when you do it also, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Loathe yeah, yeah, yourself yeah. as you take it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so, yeah. and then, and then now that I come to the table and I have this view of real presence that there's something mystically there, I'm actually having real fellowship with yeah. God. When I take uh, the, the bread, I take the wine, there's something like, it's one of my favorite moments in worship. Like, it's hard for me to want to go to a church that practices communion once a month because it like, it breaks my heart that I don't get to encounter God in that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things I look forward to the most. And Francis had mentioned the woman with the issue of blood, lots of people are around Jesus, but there's this one woman who's coming to touch him in faith and she receives something from him. And it's like, when we come to the table expecting to receive something from Christ, it's like, it's all the more there. So when I talk about sanctification, I'm not asking you to like hunt down some mystical experience in the same way that you would glean from the word, being dependent on the spirit in moments of trial, in, in, in desert seasons, you know, as you would encounter God in worship and then just the, the regular means of grace that God uses amongst the fellowship. Um, I would just say, attach your faith to this idea that God is infusing you with that energy. He's infusing you with that divine nature that we read about in first Peter, that there's something um, um, spiritually wonderful and mystical that's taking place in order to give you more intimacy and communion with God. I just, yeah. I think that's just a part of the sanctification process that we need to be hopeful of and, and attach our faith yeah. to. Um, so that's my kind of closing thought and all that, Josh, uh, what, what's that kind of thing that you want people walking away thinking about meditating on uh, as they, they, they check this out? Well, you know, that, that, you know, the beautiful, um, the bit of being, being a beautiful advocate for the Eucharist. Um, I had my, again, referencing my Anglican priest friend. I remember him saying to me one time, um, you know, you evangelicals, you look at the, uh, the, the elements as just symbols. And he said, but I, I wonder if you put them on the ground and stomped on them, if some part of you would feel bad about doing that. And if you felt bad, could they possibly be a little bit more than symbols? And I just went, Oh, that's a pretty good thought. And, you know, I just think just, and just, just elaborating on that is one of the desert fathers. He said, if you would just consider that you've been invited to abide in Christ and yet you don't, it would drive you to tears. If you just consider your distance, if you just consider what's been offered to you, the, the God of this universe, the lover of your soul has condescended himself to come to you and place his spirit within you to make him like him and to draw you to him. It is it is the craziest promise you will ever hear in your entire life. And it is the grandest adventure that you'll ever be invited on in your entire life is to become like him and to do the kind of things that he did, but to know him and to know him intimately and to know him 
thoroughly deep in your bones. One one uh, friend of mine he said that the the term to uh, uh, the Shema in the Old Testament literally meant to listen with your bones, to listen with the core of your being, to hear and obey, to listen with the core of your being, and. The Father longs to be with each and every one of you. That's evident in the gospel. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Um, he longs to be with each and every one of you. And he brought himself into the world to place himself within you. To, as Second Peter 1, 4 says, make you a partaker of his nature. Like this seems so astronomically way too good to be true. But the Bible calls it true. And it is true. The Father's invited you into a life of communion. And, you know, your heart, it may be a wilderness right now, but God's in the business of terraforming things. And he will create within you something beautiful. Uh-oh. Given time. He's preaching now. And give, <laughs> <laughs> give it time and a little bit of his tenderness and things begin to transform. Amen. Amen. And speaking of transform, check out Josh's book. There's a link of it in the description. You can pick it up on Kindle. It's like nine bucks, 10 bucks. It's awesome. Uh, crazy encouragement. If you've been edified, encouraged by this video and you're like, man, I want to learn more about this thing of sanctification, how God uses the desert, how he produces things in us, builds in us, conforms us to the image and likeness of the sun. Check out his book in the description of the video. At the very, very bottom, there's a link there. It says Josh's book. It's called Transformation, Catching a Glimpse of the Beauty of God right there. Pick it up on Kindle. 10 bucks. Right here. Look, he's got a hard copy. Look at that. If you, if people want hard copy, do they have to go to your website? No, they can order the hard copy off of the hard copies on Amazon. Also, oh, if you're yeah, in Canada, like you can I order it off here. the website. Yeah. The hard copies there on Amazon. And if you want it in, in Canada, you can order it off the website or off Amazon as well, but it's available in every Amazon place where Amazon will put it out. So. Excellent. Well, Josh, it's always, you know, a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I, I, we should have mentioned this earlier, probably at the top of the show. Josh did the whole Patristic series with us. So if you're really interested in church fathers and, and those kinds of things, you should go check out our playlist on uh, the playlist is called Back to the Fathers. It's just a series that we did uh, talking about Christian theology from a historical theological perspective, where we picked up some of the Desert Fathers and Patristics and just kind of talked about them and fleshed them out. That was uh, Father Ron Drummond. Matthew Escovel and Josh Hoffert. It was a, it was a great program. So and, you guys can check that out if you haven't already. Um, to, yeah. To and clarify, guys, Father Ron is Father Ron's again? not the Anglican friend. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Someone that said comment. that in the comment section. Yeah. yeah. Father Ron is an Anglican friend, but he's not the Anglican friend. Josh, and, Josh uh, is like, whoa, whoa, whoa! I've got more than one Anglican friend. Okay. Yeah, I've um, got at least two. Okay. <laughs> exactly. He's not. He's not sectarian. He's got. He's got more than one Anglican friend. Um. Anyway, all that to say, guys, if you've been blessed by this episode or other episodes, there are links in the description to support the channel. You can give on PayPal as a one-time gift or Patreon. Uh, you get access to extra content there on Patreon, like early releases from the Sin Conference. Uh, occasionally, we give commentary on some of our videos. Uh, we did one with like Todd White. We did one with Francis Chan. We did a commentary video um, uh, on uh, Randy Clark and some of that other stuff. Hey, if you want to know some of our thoughts on some of those more controversial interviews, we've got all that over there on Patreon. So it's five bucks a month to get access to that extra content. So consider uh, giving over there and you'll get some early release content from The Send. I know we a lot of fun. Anyway, blessings, guys. And we'll see you next tomorrow. Tomorrow we're doing Enneagram. It's back. Enneagram. Anyway, that'll be be fun. Blessings, guys.
want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.